Welcome to the Christ Community Worship Service. Woo! Our in-person church services begin every Sunday morning at 11.15 a.m. We are located at 1281 Sheridan Street in the city of Baldwin, Michigan. Now turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. While you're finding our scripture passage, let me say this. Amid the activities and messages that happened in February, the month of love. Uh, this has uh, largely been attributed to the month of love by a conflicting and confusing legend. So I'm not sure if it's true. Supposedly, there was a certain priest named St. Valentine who is said that he lived in the third century. And there is a story that says that he was in prison because of his Christian activities. One maintains an account that right before he, was, he went through his martyrdom, that he sent a letter to his lady love in which he signed the letter from your valentine. Whether that's a true story or not, I don't know. You can Google it and let me know. But St. Valentine's Day is a certainty for every Christian that's not just on February the 14th. Thank you, but every day we can draw near to the message of God's love to a needy mankind. Let's turn to our passage now, Romans chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners... Christ died for us. Heavenly Father, we embrace your love. We embrace you. You created us to receive your love. It's so simple. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bring the revelation of how to receive and how to accept. We are not worthy, but you loved us in spite of who we are. We're praying for the revelation, O oh God, of your word through your spirit that would blow up and ride upon every word. God, let it be all of you and none of me. You get the glory, Senor anointing. In the name of Jesus, bless everyone within the sound of my voice. Cause them to understand that you love the world unconditionally. We thank you, O oh God, and give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 8 
A, but God demonstrates his own love for us. Take your neighbor by the hand and say, neighbor, what's love got to do with it? <laughs> Take your other neighbor by the hand and say, neighbor, what's love got to do with it? <laughs> Woo! You may, you may be seated. You may be seated. I love it. I love it. What's love got to do with it? <laughs> oh, what a question. Yet sometimes the most common things that we say all the time, we really don't even understand. Sean and I talk, talked earlier uh, this week, or you, you could say last week, like, what is love? <laughs> uh, we, we really uh, say so much that we, we don't know what we're talking about. But when we look at this text, we find that it is the gospel in a nutshell. It sets a theological framework for really teaching the whole gospel by stating the elements of salvation as simply and directly as can be found anywhere in the Bible. The motive of God's gift, which is love. The purpose of God's gift, which is salvation. And the status of of believers, it's so simple that really even a child could understand this basic meaning and accept it, which is the love of God, the gift of God and our response to what he's given. We see that the love of God, it's more than a sentimental feeling, but God's love is a love that costs. A love that gives. A love that poured out. How? Because he gave what was most precious and dear to him. Mm. So what is love? I think we can start with the definition of love. It will become clear then why so many of us, when we see the definition of love, why so many of us struggle and ask the question, what is love? Uh, so there are different kinds of love. To put it another way, we could even say that the word love is used in different ways. And whenever we are asking what is love, what it is, in a sense, we need to respond and say, according to whose definition or according to what document or according to which passage in the Bible. So we could start, I think, with definition. Currently, I am reading a book and I'm always, always, always reading a book. And if you want to get on my good side... After you feed me, ask me what book I'm currently reading and then be prepared for me to go on and on and on for 30 minutes. But currently I am reading a book about the relationship between C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman. The name of the book is Becoming Mrs. Lewis. And in this book, Lewis, who is a great theologian, Lewis distinguishes the four kinds of love, which I'm sure you all have heard at some point. Number one, there's Eris, a romantic love where two lovers just are hungry for each other all the time. And then there is Phileos, 
a friendship love where two people are linked arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder with a common vision and common goal and a delight and partnership pulling toward their common goal. Then there is storge or storge, which is affection that one might have for an old house coat or a sweater or a pet, you know, pancake. <laughs> and then there is agape love, which we are so familiar with, which is divine love characterized by sacrifice in the pursuit of another person's good. So just what we learned from uh, C.S. Lewis, which one of those do we want to describe as what love is? So that is the reason when we see all of those ways that the word love can be used, that we are asking the question, well, what is it? Mm. It can be used in so many different ways, which is not a bad thing. And in fact, the matter is, as I studied this week, I didn't know this before I studied, that you can probably break this down a little bit easier than the traditional way we typically do by breaking divine love into two categories. Uh, the writers that I read this week, the two categories are the love of complacency and the love of benevolence. I have never heard this. The love of complacency would be, somebody had me over for dinner this week and they served me banana pudding. Mm. Me saying, I love banana pudding. Mm. Yeah. In other words, I find myself pleased with the qualities that I find in banana pudding, mainly how it tastes and the consistency. That would be the love of complacency. Or you may say, I love living in the country, you know, like Idlewild or Woodland Park. There's all sorts of things that you could find lovely. Or you could say, I love these things because they please me. That's the love of complacency. And then there is the love of benevolence. It's not based on the loveliness of the object that you love, but rather your goodwill that you can do for another word, for another person. In other words, benevolence is your goodwill toward the person or thing that you are loving your aim in that kind of love is to do good to bring about something beautiful instead of responding to beauty now we could spend a long time discussing the nature of complacency in God and what it is like to know and enjoy and admire and be satisfied in God. And we could spend a long time talking about benevolence to people who don't have the admirable traits that would make us drawn to them. But what I would like to do that I think would be helpful in the response to the question, what is love? is to give the biblical definition of the love of benevolence because this is the kind of love which the in the Bible celebrates to be the heart of God. 
So the magnitude of God's love, of benevolence, is measured in the Bible by a criteria of four reasons. And I got this from John Piper. Number one, this is the measure of benevolence. The degree to which the person loved does not deserve to be loved. Number two, the greatness of the price paid to the person loved. Number three, the greatness of the good that is done for the person when he or she is loved. And number four, the level of desire that God has for the good of the one that is loved. Let's read our text again. God loves the least deserving and therefore his love is the greatest. It said that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might even die. But God demonstrated his love for us, showed his love for us. Mm. It says in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So the first measure of magnitude of God's love is that I don't deserve it. That's why it's great. (laughs) I know I'm right. John 15 and 13 says, greater love has no man than this, that someone laid down his life for a friend. Consider the price he is willing to pay. This love is measured not just by fact uh, that I don't deserve it. It is measured. Also, by the price that he is willing to pay, namely the death of his only begotten son. We all know John 3.16. Look at this measure that his love went through so that we could have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed on him shall have eternal life. The greatest possible love gives the greatest possible gift which was God himself. Did God show this love begrudgingly? Did someone have to twist his arm? Recently I preached here from Zephaniah 317. It says the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. We read the same response in the parable of the prodigal son. While he was still down the road, the father came running down the road and put a ring on his finger and a coat around him and shoes and threw a party of celebration and celebrated no one is twisting the father's arm to love us. The most beautiful love in the world is this divine 
divine agape love that pays the highest price of his son completely for undeserving enemies to give us the longest and greatest happiness in his presence. And God shows us, the Bible says, shows us his love. So the heart of God's love is benevolence toward unworthy people like us. And the ultimate goal of human life is complacency in God. In other words, God doesn't have ultimate satisfaction in us. He's God. We have ultimate satisfaction in him. He created us to have ultimate satisfaction in him. He created and tailor-made this world so that we would have ultimate complacency in him. Remember, complacent love, I love you because you please me. Complacent love, I love you because you're beautiful and therefore I desire you. We have ultimate complacency in God. He is beautiful. He is fulfilling. He is the answer to every question. He is ever satisfying. And what we see in him, we desire. We don't love God by helping God out of his deficiency into joy. God loves us by saving us are rescuing us out of our deficiency into joy. God is our only source for ultimate satisfaction. So now you want to ask me, then why do so many people struggle with understanding what love is? Well, I'm glad you asked. Beloved, we are by virtue sinful and self-centered. And instead of being God-centered, we run in a thousand directions to get away from the truth. The lasting satisf- that lasting satisfaction is only found in God. And that God is our only source of joy. Now somebody want to know, well, okay, then I want God's love. So let's go back to verse 5b. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Ghost that was given to us. Now, God's love being poured into our heart is not the same as God's love being poured into our mind. God's love poured into our heart is a real heart experience of being loved by God. God's love proven to our mind is the conclusion of an argument. There will not necessarily be any feeling uh, of God. Yeah, you, you know in your head some things because they've been proven to you by argument. For example, let's go back to St. John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Well, I'm a part of the world, therefore God loves me. 
Uh, Christ told us, uh, he said that in uh, John 15, no greater love has no man than this to lay down their life for a friend. Well, I'm a friend of God. I follow God and therefore God loves me. Or we could go to the 14th verse and say he loves those that keeps his commandments. I keep most of the commandments. So therefore in my head, I know that God loves me. But that's not what Romans 5 and 5 is saying. Romans 5 and 5 is saying that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Beloved, this is a spirit given experience of God's love. It is more than a logical argument. Something is being poured out. Something is being poured into your heart and you can feel it. Hallelujah. It is something felt and known in your heart. The only way that your heart can know a thing. And notice the magnitude of the role that this experience of the love of God is supposed to have in your life. God's love is the foundation of how you can be sure that your hope will not put you to shame. Go back to verse 5. You see this small word because hope does not put us to shame Because God's love is being poured in our heart. Because brings those two things together. Uh, Now somebody wants to know how can hope be put to shame? Uh, Number one, your hope might not be real. In other words, you say your hope is in God when it really isn't. Mm. Your hope is in health, wealth, and prosperity. Or you might say that your hope is real, but really your hope is built on seeking sand because you don't even know or believe if God loves you after all. Or you could be at threat. Uh, If you have been attending Bible class, this is exactly where we are. And verse 3 tells us that God puts us through the fires of suffering to refine our hope to wean us off of the pleasures of this world the comforts of this world of health wealth and prosperity and to prove to our conscience that there is only hope in God not only that but we rejoice this is what we learned in Bible class we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. When you come through the trial uh, and you know that it was God that brought you through, uh, you know that you could not have done this uh, if it had not been for the Lord on your side. uh, Where would you be? Uh, I would not have survived. Uh, The fire was real, uh, but I did not fail. Uh, 
the threat was real, but I made it through. I know that my hope has not been put to shame. I know that my hope is not fake. It is real because of the love that God has poured into my heart. Hope will not put us to shame because of the foundation of what God has poured into me. Ah, My hope has not been a waste of time because of what God has poured into me. Ah, And my heart My heart knows more than what my mind knows. My heart knows and it really knows that the kind of love that God has poured in my heart is worth dying for. The kind of love that God has poured in my heart is not in vain. This is not the work of another individual. This is not my work, but this Love is supernatural. It's not by my power and not by my might, but it's by the work of the Lord. Now in verse 6, there's another little word. For. (laughs) For while we were weak. (laughs) At just the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. And then Paul unfolds for us the historical objective. This is what happened in history. Christ died for the ungodly. Yeah, it shows us, verse 8, historically it happened and showed us his love when we did not deserve it. We can go back in history and we can know that Christ died for us. Now, what is the relation between the historical fact of God showing me his love and verse 8 and pouring out his love in verse 5? Historically and objectively, I've got this in my mind. But to experience it, I need the Holy Ghost. I need the Holy Ghost to let me see what God has showed me. Can I see it with my natural eyes? Can I understand it with our natural mind? The whole no, the Holy Ghost comes into our heart and he opens up the eyes of my heart and I begin to see things that I've never seen before the eyes of my heart are able to see what God showed us over 2,000 years ago I could not see it without the Holy Ghost so therefore what I see is beautiful to me what I I see, I desire because it is a divine, satisfying beauty of God. And we have been filled with that glory and the eyes of my heart can now view it. Hallelujah. 
as my eyes are open, I can't get off the fact that he died for my sins. As my eyes are open, uh, it's hard for me to let go of the fact uh, that I've got eternal life. As my eyes are open, uh, I can't get off that word amazing grace and mercy. Uh, Who would not love a God like this? 2 Thessalonians 3 and 5. I got three minutes. Mm. It says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Here we have Paul praying. Paul is praying that God would do something for you right now. What does he want God to do for you Right now, he wants you, he wants the Holy Spirit, he wants God to direct your heart. Paul, are you saying that my heart can be directed in the wrong direction? Are you saying that I need to pray that my heart be directed in the right direction? Paul is saying, God, direct their hearts toward you who is attractive and desirable, satisfying and beautiful. Paul prays that this will happen, which means that we are vulnerable to be distracted from the truth of God's love. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Beloved, God will not let you down and your hope will not leave you empty. He poured out his love into your hearts. Pray. He also prayed in Ephesians that the eyes of our hearts would be open. Pray that I know we all got glasses, but pray that the eyes of your heart will be opened so that we can see the objective historical fact that was put in place before the foundation of the world and that God chose you in love. He wants you. He desires you. Desire him as much as he desires you. Hallelujah. God bless you. If you have not received Jesus Christ as your personal savior, ah, you Only have to repent of your sins and pray this simple prayer with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've done many things that don't please you. I've lived my life for myself only. I'm sorry and I repent and I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you died on the cross for me to save me. You did what I could not do for myself. I come to you now and ask you to take control of my life. I give it to you from this day forward. Help me to live every day in a way that pleases you. If you prayed that simple prayer with me, please contact me at 231-349-1046. So we may pray with you and discuss the first steps of salvation.